So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, October the 28th. That's right. Already we're in the last Friday of October, November next week. I don't know where the time goes. This is episode number 181 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm really glad that you're here. If you're brand new, welcome. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description below. And uh, you'll see everything, including links and further reading and references and everything you might need. You can submit your own questions by following the link down in the video description that takes you to my website, thewaytobe.org. And then you click on the left column, the little page marked The Way to Be. There's a form for you to fill out. And some people use the anonymous part today, too. So we're going to talk about that. What's going on outside? 56 degrees Fahrenheit right now. So bees are foraging. They're desperate this time of year because the environment is providing almost nothing now. That's 13 degrees Celsius, by the way. So these are the questions that were submitted over the past week. Let's get started. First question comes from Michael McHugh. Fred, could you give us a Vespa Mandarinia update? Okay, Vespa Mandarinia, what is it? If you looked at the um, cover image today, I was holding this little rascal right here, which is the European Hornet. This is not Vespa Mandarinia. This is Vespa Crebro. But the reason that I put it up here is because people find hornets like this different times of the year all over the northern United States, North America. And uh, they post it and go, aha, I have murder hornets already at my house. No, these aren't even a fraction of the size of the Asian giant hornet which the media has labeled the murder hornet. And that is Vespa mandarinia. So what can we talk about? Well, we know it's in Washington state. We know that it uh, came here. It's not native to the United States. And for those of you who don't know, it's a large hornet. In fact, the largest hornet in the world. And uh, it doesn't come from here. And we have people tracking its progress. Why do we care? What, what does it even matter if this thing spreads around? Well, because it destroys honeybees, for one. It also destroys other wasps that are already native to the United States and Canada. And uh, it's pretty scary to people that deal with it. So what's the update? Well, we know we have them. And the entomologists, by the way, that are up there, Washington State University, for example, tracks it. They have a web page for it, so you can check that out. I'm going to give you a link to another website, another YouTube channel at the end of today's YouTube there, my shout out for today. But I just want to talk a little bit about the differences between bees and hornets and wasps in general, because it applies. The update is vague, by the way. And uh, if you look into the scholars, the people in the know, people that know everything about everything and uh, are at the cutting edge of determining methods for mitigating or destroying and removing uh, Mandarinia completely, they're all over it. They said that they're confident that they're going to get it, that it is not going to spread, that there are so many people looking out for it, that there's citizen science. I always ask them things like, what's your latest bait? What are you guys using? What are bringing in all the wasps and stuff? And they say orange juice and mixes like that. So their methods are pretty basic, I think, considering uh, mandarinia can be way high up in a tree. They can be in the ground. And uh, here's where they differ from honeybees. 
if we have honeybees and uh, honeybees want to make another colony of bees, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the spread, the potential for them to get all over the place. So how do they spread? Well, we're looking at yellow jackets, bald-faced hornets, the European hornet around here, by the way. Um, and we see how they live in a social nest through the, you know, productive year. So here in the state of Pennsylvania, where I live, uh, the wasps are now generating queens. And including our only true hornet that's resident to the United States, of course, Mandarinia will be added to that list. But uh, the crub row specimen here, when they produce their queens at the end of the year, uh, they're no longer social in regards to the way they survive winter. The queen hornets and queen yellow jackets and queen bald-faced hornets, which are really just wasps, uh, they fly out solitary. So they mate at the end of the year. So there's males in their paper nests right now. They mate, the queens fly out, and they survive winter by themselves. The percentage of queens that survive winter, I'm not sure about, but here's the thing. It only takes one queen hornet to start an entire new colony in the spring. That's why it's a huge challenge to get those things under control. Because let's say they find a nest of the Asian giant hornet in the ground, in a tree, wherever it happens to be. They have to get every single queen that's in that nest this time of year. Because if they just let one or two escape, and they can fly up to 50 miles an hour and uh, they go a pretty decent distance. I'm going to provide a link down in the video description which has the science on how they spread and where they're headed, kind of. Uh, but one queen makes it to spring, she starts a colony. That's why they have their work cut out for them. And I don't like the alarmist way of, you know, I understand they can be devastating. They can take out a, a beehive, you know, they can be devastating for our agriculture. And uh, they're impressive. There's no question about it. But uh, what I'm worried about is, and the reason why I showed that uh, Crebro specimen is because the lay people out there just want to kill everything when they get scared. I don't know if you all remember a movie called Jaws when it first came out. And everybody became afraid. Well, everybody, a lot of people became afraid of sharks. And they were even afraid of sharks in freshwater lakes. There were people that wouldn't even go in swimming pools. That's how afraid they were. And uh, they started killing sharks all over the place. Nurse sharks, reef sharks, you know, everything that, that was benign, you know, that wouldn't attack people, all because of the great white that was featured in the movie Jaws. So now we have an Asian giant hornet that the media, because they want to get more people to watch their stuff, calls it the murder hornet. It kills people. People have died. But they take that kind of out of context because the people that were being killed by them in Asia were stealing their um, larvae because they're valuable in the market. So it wasn't like they were coming out into the communities and murdering people because they're walking their dog or their cat or something like that. So the response from people, when it gets that title, and when we start saying it's killing people, they're going to arm themselves with chemicals, and they're going to use insecticides, and they're going to use it on all the things they don't understand. How many times have you seen a video on YouTube where somebody says, look at this swarm of bees, and it's a bunch of paper wasps, or it's a bunch of yellow jackets. I hate bees. And then they don't even realize that honeybees and other bee species are entirely different from the vespids, from the wasps. 
So that's why I'm a little worried about everybody freaking out. So what can we do as beekeepers? I think we can help to educate the people around us and hopefully cause a ripple effect of uh, understanding. It doesn't mean that the Asian giant hornet isn't a big deal. It is and has the potential to be. And they're showing its migration. In other words, where it's setting up new uh, colonies, right? Towards water and then following the water fronts. So I find that interesting too. And then, of course, they speculate that it could show up on the East Coast and so on. But uh, I just don't want people to become alarmed about every flying, stinging insect. That's all. So for those of you who want to take a deeper dive on how it's spreading, where it's located now, and where they find the nests, uh, I'll leave a link down there that shows the study, and it's in uh, great detail. But I want to make that distinction. A honeybee queen can fly out on her own. She's doomed. She needs a colony of bees. Honeybees create perennial nests. So the nest survives winter and they continue to grow and expand from that single cavity year after year after year, unless it's unhealthy, unless they abscond, unless something really dramatic happens. And when they abscond, they don't leave alone. They leave in a group. They swarm. They go. Where wasps are a much bigger deal and their survivability is kind of better than for the honeybee, because a single wasp can get through winter. They have a non-perennial nest, so they build a new nest every year. In other words, if you find a paper wasp nest this time of year, and it's really big, and it's all gray, and it's paper, and it's cool looking, and you think, I have to destroy that nest because next year they'll just come back to it and start again. They don't. So they don't reuse their paper nests unless they're in a part of the country where it doesn't get cold enough to kill them off. That's when you find these yellow jacket nests that'll fill an entire shed that people haven't been into for a while. But here in the north, and they need to survive winter, uh, the nest gets abandoned, the queens fly out individually, and they start as I described before, but leave the nests, especially if they're sheltered. So my way to be building has a big paper wasp nest hanging down on the porch just under the overhang there, and people go, oh, what's up with that nest up there? Well, it's empty and that will help deter in spring other paper wasps from building there. So it's pretty cool, but I just wanted to explain the difference and kind of let you know that they have the work cut out for them. It's not, there's no evidence that it's spreading rapidly, but I think there's conflict among the experts regarding whether or not we can really get it taken care of to the point where it doesn't exist anymore. Question number two comes from Gary. Fred B. Behavior questions 74 degree Fahrenheit this week in North Georgia. Feeding my four hives fresh sugar water. Hives have plenty of stores. So why do bees act like they're starving? Feeding frenzy. Even yellow jackets losing their minds. Okay, well that brings me up to what's going on outside here in the Northeastern United States, cautionary tale. If you're not able to see your beehives, okay, I want to give a shout out today to Castle Hives. Those are the stream team guys, and that's uh, Brian was here giving him a walkthrough of my backyard apiary. He goes, oh, what's going on with that hive over there? And he pointed out one of the Apamay hives, sure enough, being robbed. So, uh, you need to be vigilant about your beehives this time of year, looking at them. What did I do about that? Well, I slid the little, it's an ape hive, so I just slid it so there's only one entrance hole until the robbing subsides. 
When you're looking at your hives and you see that they are very hungry and being attacked by non-resident bees or wasps, and there's yellow jackets are so frustrating this time of year because if you go out there early in the morning as I do, get your cup of coffee, a zip out there, the frost is melting away from everything because by the way, it was only 29 degrees this morning. You look at an entrance and what happens? I don't mean to suggest that the wasps were flying at 29 degrees, but later on when the sun came up and it was only in the 40s, Wasp landed on a landing board, scooted right in the opening of an ape May hive. Confident, because the bees are clustered in there, and I put my ear down and I listened to the entrance. I could hear the bees inside fanning, but they're clustered. They're not defending the entrance. So I've got this confident yellow jacket wasp zipping right in there. So what did I do? I sit there for 10 minutes waiting for that wasp to come back out, and then I, I smash him. Sorry for the violence, but I did. So... You have to be aware this time of year because what's happening? The numbers are big. The foragers are looking for something to do. On warm days, they're trying to get every last bit of resource from the environment into their hive for winter. Instinctively, it's what they do. They're hoarders. They get everything they can. The most aggressive colonies right now are the largest ones, the healthiest ones, the ones that need it the least. And they're the ones that are going to rob out all those little ones. Uh, the phrase is strangling the baby in the cradle. So these little colonies are just starting out. We have to keep them with tiny entrances until this feeding frenzy phase subsides. And that's because we have wasps, European hornets. That's where I got this hornet too, by the way, was going after a beehive. And uh, the bees are too cold and they're clustered and the guards aren't on the landing board to defend. So they get robbed out a little bit. Once robbing starts, very difficult to stop. So this is why you have to think about it this way. They've been foraging for miles in some cases. Now the environment's closing down. The flower shop is closed. There are no nectaries anymore producing sucrose. There's There are very few right now. Uh, what do we have? Goldenrod is gone. We have asters. So there are still some asters out there. And here's an example when you can really tell that the environment isn't providing enough for the number of bees that are around. If you look at one aster plant and there's a bee on every flower, they're desperate. In fact, they're not getting what they need from those flowers because they're just overworked. That's why when you put feed out right now, you divert those foragers to your feeding station and it's a dog pile of bees. So uh, that's what's going on. And eventually, and look at the foragers, by the way, that are at those feeders. You'll see a lot of tattered wings and stuff. So they're at the end of their lives. Another thing that they're going to be collecting on these mornings when frost melts and stuff like that, they're collecting a lot of water because uh, they're starting to take care of the cluster inside the hive. So that's why they're always hungry. They're just, they eat more than they need. They take more than they need and they store it. That's why it works for us because we can get the surplus honey from them. It's that fact that they're hoarding is, is what benefits us. But uh, that's really what's going on. Yellow jacket stuff, man, it's hard to like them. You know, you just see them. First, you start thinking, oh, they're okay. They're just scooting around. And when you have robbers uh, inspecting a hive and thinking about getting into it, this should get your attention when they're flying in at the sides, when they're flying in at the back. You see them underneath the hive. They're kind of avoiding the entrance because they don't want conflict. It's kind of like when somebody is trying to rob a house. They want to rob the house when the people aren't there because they don't want to engage the owner. They want they don't want you to do the flying monkey takedown and rub their face in the carpet while 911 gets called. Um, so they avoid it. They try to backdoor them. They try to get in through the sides. Or they get them when uh, 
It's a small colony that can't defend itself. So if you see that activity, pay attention to your entrances and reduce them. If it's a full-on robbing situation, close the entrance completely. Stop it right there. And then the ones that are inside, they get trapped and they get killed by the other ones. But uh, don't forget to open it up later, of course. But uh, this is the time of year. They are, as you say, going nuts. They don't like yellow jackets. European hornets, they're okay. How many can they get? They're not too bad. Now, if we had mandarinia here, Vespa mandarinia, I don't know what to do. Because uh, we can put screens, you know, in front of the hives that the bees can get through, but mandarinia couldn't. But then those, those things will hang out outside the screen and just kill the bees as they come back. So I'm hoping they get a hold of that. I don't want to be dealing with them here in the state of Pennsylvania. We're many years away, according to the, according to the experts, many years away, even if they make it. Okay, let's move on to question number three, which is from Dan Holt. Quick question. I'm in Minnesota, similar climate to yours. How late in the year can I treat with oxalic acid vapor? For those of you who don't know, oxalic acid is used to treat for varroa mites, which are parasitizing your bees. They're found in the nurse bee area primarily. They like to reproduce in brood, drone brood preferably. Guess what's missing now? The drones aren't being developed, so all of your residual mites are headed for your worker brood. They're on the nurse bees, and they're robbing them of their fat stores. They're giving those bees liposuction is what they're doing. So the adult mites are attaching themselves to the underbellies of the bees. They get between their plates. They get their little feeding mouths in there and they start dissolving away the fat stores of the bees so it's bad news now can you treat with oxalic acid vaporization in winter yes here's the thing to consider what's the cluster doing so it's you want to do it at the most effective time so there's two things to consider really one is what's the cluster like inside the hive if it's below 60 degrees fahrenheit outside Unless it's like a super insulated hive, they're going to be tightly clustered. The colder it gets outside, the tighter the cluster gets inside. What are they clustered over? They're clustered over whatever brood they have. What's in the center of the cluster? The most sensitive bees, the nurse bees. And in this time of year, the fat-bodied winter bees, which are like super nurse bees. They're sheltered in the middle. The older bees are on the outside. So where are we trying to get our oxalic acid to land on the surface? We're trying to get it to land on the surface primarily of the brood area, the brood frames. And we want it to get all over those nurse bees because that's where we want it to come in physical contact with the varroa destructor mites so that they can lose their footing, so they can lose their ability to feed, so that they can fall down through your screen board or your bottom board or the bees can chew them up and groom them off, whatever happens. So the temperature limitations really are based on how tight the cluster is. So if you get a day that it hits the 50s, my target zone is end of November, and we do get some warm days like that. So you see the weather people, and they're saying it's going to be 55 degrees Fahrenheit today or 60 degrees Fahrenheit today. You can treat. Now, if two days from that, it's going to hit 70 for two hours in the afternoon, optimum opportunity to treat. Because at the end of November, beginning of December, here in the northeastern United States, you're going to have the smallest brood, and therefore, and they're changing this on us, by the way, they used to call it, uh, the phoretic state. So phoretic mites were mites that were outside and outside of uh, pupa caps because it doesn't work underneath the capping of a developing honeybee. 
So if they're phoretic, they're exposed, but apparently there's some discussion about, well, phoretic means are just out on their own, where this traveling phase is when they're still attached to a bee feeding, so therefore that's more appropriate. So you might hear some changes in what the terminology is regarding what a mite is doing and where it's doing it, but the bottom line, the practical end of it for the backyard beekeeper is, is the mite exposed, where I can hit it with oxalic acid vapor and get the oxalis to settle on those surfaces, on the bees, on the brood, on the comb, and then get those mites to put their feet on it somewhere so that they can be damaged by it. And uh, so that means a loose or open cluster, the warmer the day, the better, and uh, an opportunity to hit them when the brood is the smallest and therefore more mites are available to get that oxalic acid vapor. Other than that, we don't have the temperature parameter restrictions that you had, for example, on Formic Pro. If you have uh, treatments that require volatility of whatever you're putting in there, so you need warm enough temperatures for it to go airborne to do its stuff, but not so hot that it actually kills your bees. So oxalic acid does not have those restrictions. Question number four comes from Andrew. You ever deliberately bury your hives for insulation and this was posted on my uh, YouTube that showed cleaning out entrances for beehives so heavy snow so we do know that what do we know about snow let's think about that so in winter time I always have this opinion that if it's going to be really cold below 32 degrees Fahrenheit which is zero degrees Celsius if things are going to freeze I'd like to see snow snow is an insulator why is it an insulator well because when the snow falls down it traps air and uh, it can actually shelter your beehives from wind. Now, would I intentionally heap a bunch of snow on my beehives to benefit from that insulation, right? I would not personally do that. And uh, for one thing, it's just not practical. I'm not gonna hike out there in two feet of snow and shovel a whole bunch of it all over the beehives. Uh, ultimately, what's frozen and gathered around your hives is going to melt. You get those hot days, it's going to melt off, and now you've got a lot of moisture on and around your hives directly up against them. And so what the bees do, even when, and it's fun to look at your beehives, and I hope you do that, if this is going to be your first winter and you've got snow, or even those who've kept bees for a long time, I always go out there and check the hives in wintertime. I like to look at them. I like to see that even when the snow gets really deep, and it banks up against the hives. Uh, I like to look and see where the airflow is. So the bees are respirating and moving air, even with active snowing. And that's why you'll see the tiniest gap facing your beehive. Here's the big mound of snow. And then you'll see these tiny openings between the hive and the snow. Part of that is because the snow builds up against the hive. There's some warmth emanating from the hive. And so that can melt the snow away a little bit, but around the entrance, you'll see these little channels in there that the bees are venting through. Very interesting to see that because it shelters the hive from wind, at the same time provides them with an air inlet and exit so they can still vaporize the hive. Remember, these aren't people. These are honeybees. So they don't need the same levels of oxygen to survive that we do. What you might perceive as too high humidity inside the hive might be comfortable for the bees and in fact may have a secondary effect of reducing varroa destructor mite reproduction. High humidity, low oxygen, high CO2, the bees can handle it 
and some lab experiments, not practical outside in your bee yard experiments, some lab experiments have demonstrated that the reproduction of the mite can be shut down by as far as 1% normal reproduction. So anything that spanks those mites is okay with me. But as far as heaping snow around it, by the way, snow is still prone to letting the uh, outside temperature impact what it's up against until it's how deep, how thick. How deep does it have to be? Snow needs to be 12 to 18 inches before it's insulated from the outside temperatures. So the other thing is snow density. How are you going to pack it up against your, your beehive? So if you're using the shovel, every shovel load packs it kind of tight up against there. So the less air that's in the snow, the less insulation properties it's going to have. So now you've also added more water potentially up against your hive. So I'm just getting you thinking about what that actually does for your bees. Sheltering them from a strong wind, sure. You know, so that's helpful. Those of you who, like I did as a child, you know, we, we made these big piles of snow, we dug holes in them, and then we used sleds and we made our own igloos. And it felt warm in there. It felt warm because it provided shelter, no wind, the interior surface of the snow is 32 degrees Fahrenheit or zero Celsius. And so you actually could uh, create protection especially if it was going to drop to 12 or 13 degrees outside, the snow would definitely provide a beneficial barrier. So shelter alone is worth something. But if you want to know more about this, the information that I gathered on that is from the National Snow and Ice Data Center. They have interesting uh, information there about the traits of snow and ice. So... No, I would not intentionally pile it up, but if it comes and the, the wind blows it in there and the snow falls on the hives, you see hive covers with, you know, 10 inches or 20 inches of snow on top of them, which is not rare here, and it's insulated inside compound, it's just a good, yeah, it's fine for me. I don't mind at all. Question number five comes from Gloria Nelson, and it says, my bees are eating from a community feeder. Have not had any robbing, so am grateful. It will be getting cold here in Wisconsin soon. I bought the double bubble. So anxious to use it on my inner cover this winter with the wrap it around feeder on top. What would you think of putting my Hive Alive patty inside the feeder for their use during winter? And I'm going to say don't. But you can do anything you want. I'm just going to explain why. So what's the wrap it around feeder that she's talking about? This is a wrap it around feeder. It just happens to be yellow. There are bigger ones that are white. And so this is what double bubble looks like. And I was gonna put that around that. That's not necessary, but putting it over the top. So if I had dry feed in this, pull this inner cone out, put your dry sugar around here, cover that up and now the bees go up in here and they feed on it and there's double bubble over the top of it because we want to reflect the warmth that's generated inside the hive. We want to try to keep as much of that in this capsule as possible. Now, if you were going to use Hive Live fondant, she mentions, so this is Hive Live fondant. I'm going to explain two things. One is you could, you know, cut this up and stick it in here in some way put the lid on and then they would still come up through the center and they would get to the fondant. But if I were going to, as I am this year here in my apiary, I'm not using 
rapid rounds for winter emergency feed. Now I would use these if it was time to put a new swarm in or if we're starting a new package of bees or something. Sugar syrup in this is a great way to deliver it. They take it really well. It will never spill down into the hive, so that risk is gone. So this is still a great feeder. Just for me now, for winter feeding, I won't be using it. And that's because this is a self-contained feeding system. So if you've got your inner cover, and hopefully it's an insulated inner cover, like the new ones that have come out from B-Smart Designs that I used last winter. They have a little hole right in the top. So there's insulation, there's a hole through the center, and you would put your rapid round on top of that hole. But if you're feeding fondant, I just cut the circle slightly larger than that hole right here, peel this off, put this by itself right over that and have the whole packet right there. Because what the bees demonstrated last year is that they'll move throughout, it'll just expand in a concentric circle and they'll expand and consume all of the fondant in this packet. So this packet keeps it in contact, just like when you're putting food in your refrigerator, for example. If you can eliminate the air around the food, the food stays fresher longer. So this packet keeps air from interacting with the unused portions of your fondant. So the bees go through here and the fondant's still fresh and you can feel it right away. You can feel how flexible it stays. So it stays in a liquid state, which is more beneficial to the bees. If you were to peel away the entire surface, all this plastic, uh, it dries out. It's not as available to the bees. It doesn't stay as fresh and it forces the bees to eat it too soon. So I say cut the little hole, put that over the hole and let this be the self-contained thing and put your double bubble, your insulation over the top of this. And then that helps keep this all encapsulated too. You've got a insulated inner cover, you've got your feed, you've got insulation over the top of it and then you've got your insulated cover there. And you can pull off your lid, look at this, and see what the progress is right now. And this is a great way to go. There's no reason to cut all this open and create a bunch of surface area that gets exposed to the air and have it in this feeder configuration. There's no advantage to this over just putting the packet on by itself. But I do see an advantage to leaving it in the packet and limiting the entry area so the bees can go in and feed that way, keeping the fondant fresher longer. it. And if you want to read more about that and studies that have been done on Hive Alive, there'll be a link down in the video description. Question number six. This is from Pam Robinson. Says, I'm a new beekeeper with just one hive in my backyard. I agree that joining a local club is important as well as having a local mentor. It has paid off for me. I wonder if you would provide suggestions for camera lenses, better photos of my bees in action. I'm not a professional in any way, but a fairly good amateur using my Canon DSLR on a tripod, but would like to get closer and uh, as stills. Thanks, and I've learned a lot of bee biology from your close-ups. Okay, so this is for Pamela. Uh, a lot of people ask about my photography and what I would recommend, and especially when it comes to amateur or prosumer groups that are doing photography, uh, photography principles remain the same, but when it gets down to talking about specific equipment, now we're Canon and Nikon and Sony and everything else that's out there, we have so many photographers already that teach photography on YouTube 
that for me to wade into that is not really very beneficial. So when it comes to what would I recommend uh, to get closer and to get uh, you know action and stills and get macro work, um, everything I do is basically Nikon and Sony. So some of the equipment that I use would not be practical for most backyard beekeepers because they have a tendency to overdo it. Why? Because it's my profession. I'm a professional photographer. I'm a professional cinematographer. So the equipment that I use um, usually is kind of overdoing it when it comes to what other people do. But I do love getting macro pictures. I think it's great when people have insects available to them. And uh, I've recently taken pictures of jumping spiders and stuff like that just for fun because what I do is I test my gear. And so I review and evaluate and give feedback for the equipment that I use. And uh, so really what it comes down to is how much time you're going to spend out there hunting the perfect picture and uh, how well you understand your subject matter, what time of day to get it. I'm a big fan of shooting out in the environment on location. So a lot of macro photographers, I do bring specimens in and turn them loose on the kitchen table and things like that because I have a huge, uh, I have three windows on that whole wall in my kitchen. And so morning light comes through and it's a great opportunity because photography, photo, right? It's all about light. And uh, you're going to graph the light that you see. So it's light, dark, shadows, form, and everything else and the textures. And I understand it's fantastic and it's a lot of fun. So rather than me sit here during a beekeeping Q&A and try to explain what lens might be good or bad or what I like better, that is highly subjective because this is the age of imagery. There are phones that do fantastic jobs, but I'm also a big fan of the DSLR you described. You use Canon. I'm an Iconian. I'm an Icon Pro, so I have access to a lot of equipment before other people do. And uh, if something exists in the Nikon lineup that will get me a better picture, I get it. I want it. I spend too much for it. But it's also my job. So that's my justification. But I want to give a shout out today to someone who's a top tier macro photographer. And if you go to this guy's channel, his name is Thomas Shahan. S-H-A-H-A-N. That's his YouTube channel. He is a, a macro photographic genius. There's no question. And uh, he captures his images, uh, does fantastic things. And here's what I like about his approach to nature and to insects and arachnids and everything else that he photographs. Uh, instead of killing it, putting it on a, you know, a, a dissection pen and lighting it in the studio and taking a bunch of kind of dead, you know, images of textures and stuff for cataloging details, that has its purpose and that has its place for those who do it. But like Thomas, I like to get outside and get on the ground and crawl around and get close. And there's all there's a whole bunch of failure associated with that. And uh, that to me is why it's so exciting to do because when you're laying on the ground and you get that perspective that other people don't get, we have lots of pictures of bees on flowers and stuff like that. What's the vantage point that people usually take those pictures from? Whatever happens to be your normal standing vantage point. It's like when people take pictures of little kids and toddlers and, and all the angles are down angles looking at them, right? So you have honeybees that are foraging on low-growing plants. And we have a lot of photos of shooting down at the bee. So we have these angles down at the top. So this part I will explain 
as part of my process is to get down at eye level with whatever it is I'm about to photograph. So if I have clover that's six or eight inches tall and the bees are going to come and land on it, I want to be shooting straight across the same plane as the bee or I want to shoot up at it and it makes it look even more majestic. Now, the minute you get all set up and you combat crawl up there with your photo gear and you've got your off-camera lighting and everything else, it makes you look like a super shutterbug nerd. Uh, you get all set and you're about to get that bee and it flies away. So I'll tell you a trick. You pick flowers for those of you who want to photograph honeybees. I'm giving you, I'm giving you my tips right now. You sit in an area where they're really actively flying already. You pick a flower that looks really promising. You're 99.9% .9 sure that a honeybee is eventually going to come and land on that flower. Because here's the other thing. Honeybees, they don't like you sneaking up on them, especially if your focal distance is three inches or something with, with your macro. If they're already on the flower and you bring a lens up, which just looks like a big eye to them, as soon as you get there, they're going to fly away. But if you're already there and you're already focused, you're pre-focused on that flower, you just know a bee's going to come and you have this great sunrise coming. That's the other thing, time of day. A lot of people think middle of the day, best time to shoot with photography, right? No, it isn't. That's super uninteresting. So what we want is the sunrise. We want that raking light to come across the top of those plants because we're dealing with low-lying plants. Or we want sunset light, same thing, low angles, raking light, dramatic contrast. Don't shoot in the middle of the day. So anyway, and this is just me, but then you'll get these angles set up on that. And then when a bumblebee or the honeybee comes in and when they do land on that, you're already there and you're going to get the shot. This doesn't happen in five minutes of being out there. I have spent hours and hours getting three good pictures. So it's about commitment too. A lot of people think it's about the photographic equipment that you get, and to some degree it obviously is, or I wouldn't be getting the equipment that I do, but it's 99% perspiration. It's you have to actively get out there, know your equipment, work out your exposures and then get right in there. And the reason I mentioned Thomas Shahan is he's one of those guys that he uses some basic equipment. He's not a gear nut. So what he does is he finds out ways of taking extraordinary images with minimal equipment. And then I think he enjoys maybe out shooting people that have every other equipment advantage that he does not. So that's why I like his channel, Thomas Shahan. And uh, getting bees in flight is uh, a lot of fun. Sometimes you don't know what you have until you have it. Thank goodness film days are gone because I can sit right there and know in a preview of the image what I have, what I don't have. I don't have to wait till I get in the dark room, process the negatives, then wait until I get in the next dark room and process the prints to find out out of focus. Didn't get it. So there's lighting equipment. This guy talks about everything. So I'm going to provide a link for question number six of uh, Thomas Shahan. And then you can see he talks about equipment, how to set it up on a minimal budget. It's all about lighting. But what I like about him is he goes out consistently and he's constantly hiking around and trying to get, he does stacked focus images of bugs on leaves without tripods and things like that. 
steady hands, perseverance will bring you some of the most extraordinary images ever. Understand your subject matter. If you're a beekeeper like me, like hopefully many people that are watching this, you have ready access to all of these specimens because also when you're open feeding, this is one of the reasons I enjoy open feeding. I get to see all the different species of bees and because bumblebees and everything else come too, aside from your honeybees. And then we have all the wasps and the hornets and everything coming there too. And that allows you to collect specimens, get photos and everything else. So rather than run all that down, I hope that was helpful. Question number seven, here's an anonymous question from somebody, first name, Hive, last name, Tool, from Alexander, North Carolina. In your last Q&A, you had a tool for cleaning out dead bees in winter. I was wondering if the bees may use the dead bees in winter to control their incoming air at the entrance and if removing could mess with their system. Okay, so first I want to address to uh, Mr. Tool, Mr. Hive Tool. This is your clean out tool that I was using last year because it came out last year from Be Smart Designs and they sell these at Better Bee, probably other places too. They're under $5. Look how long it is. Reaches all the way back on your landing board and scrapes things out. But what I want to address on this question is, should we be, the suggestion is that maybe the bees are uh, wanting to leave their dead at the entrance and they want to uh, use them for insulation to keep the air from blowing through. And I say no to that. And here's why. If we look at what bees do on their own, uh, they're not in boxes like we put out there for them, for starters. Where's the entrance in the beehive in the spaces that they occupy? So let's say a tree, the ultimate you know, habitat for a bee is a hollow in a tree. Where's the entrance? It's rarely if ever on the very bottom. And it's, in, it's a horizontal entrance. So, and I always ask this question too, any cutout, any place that bees are occupying a space that we're not controlling, that we're not manipulating, where's the entrance? How big was the entrance? How much clutter is on the bottom? Is there a bunch of debris in the hive that is under the entrance is there because there's some questions i get a lot of questions recently about biofloors or um putting intentional debris in the bottom of a beehive to help them out well if we're paying attention to what the bees are doing in the spaces that they occupy they don't want that because they are clean as a whistle and that includes at least where we are now maybe it's a southern thing i don't know maybe some other part of the world they collect a bunch of debris in the bottom and they just leave it there. But here in the state of Pennsylvania, in my area, I go in there with a endoscope and uh, you can use a boroscope or whatever you want, but you go in and one of the things I'm very interested in is looking at the floor of the hive. It's clean. There's nothing down there. So these undertaker bees, housekeeper bees, all the bees that are designed to remove, not designed, but their, their job at the time, is to remove dead bees and material from the hive. So when the weather's warm enough for them to do it, they're getting rid of it. So this ties us to the question of what about in the winter time? When uh, would the bees pile up their dead in an entrance? Well, they let the bees, the dead will accumulate in the bottom during winter 
because they can't get out and fly. So they can't fly away with the dead bees and, and drop them in the grass the way they normally do. So you do see detritus and dead bees and things like that in winter when they can't fly. Uh, but it would not be plugging up the entrance. If the bees have a really long entrance and I have several entrance designs going on, especially in my observation hive building right now, different diameters, different lengths, some of them are six inches. So that would imitate a tree wall that was nice and healthy, six inches of entrance and the angle goes down so they can vent through it and it's not on the bottom. So with my observation hives, there are no bottom level entrances. So they're always a few inches up and then out the side. And that's because that's what we find most often in cavities occupied by bees. So I think that cleaning them out, we're doing a lot of things when we do that. One, we're saving them the effort of uh, raking out their undead bees. They need a egress route to do that. So it's very interesting too that they can go down and get the dead and drag them up and out and over obstacles and everything else to get rid of their dead. If they're on the bottom board, it seems easy to do that. But um, when they have an opportunity to remove the dead, they do. If they want to add more insulation in an area or cut down on airflow, this is why it's important to keep your entrance configuration location the same throughout the year. Because they spend so much time building honeycomb and infrastructure knowing that this is the source of the fresh air into the hive. Those of you who change your configurations going into October and November and shift the entrance location and shift these configurations off center and all of these other things, now you have meddled with what the bees have tried to arrange their resources towards managing. So now you did kind of throw them a curveball. That's why if you're going to reduce and enlarge entrances, at least keep those centered in the same spot in the hive because they arrange their brood and resources and everything else over their control of airflow. If they need to slow something down, they'll do it with the bodies of live bees. So we want to get the moisture out, the stink of dead bees, and uh, it just helps them out. Otherwise it would be in the bottom. But for those who are thinking about biofloors, uh, different times of year that would be completely clean and then they propolize everything too. So they're not putting tree debris and stuff like that, uh, rotting material and humus and crumpled up leaves or peat moss or whatever people are thinking about putting in there, uh, it does not necessarily benefit the bees. And the other thing that people are asking questions about too is what about book scorpions and pseudoscorpions and things like that? And that's why I had that conversation too with Dr. Samuel Ramsey. So, um, because we talk about those, a book scorpion can eat a Varroa destructor mite if it falls down in the bottom. How many Varroa destructor mites can it eat? Not very many. So, they also aren't tolerated up in the hive itself. And given the opportunity, would the bees clean out the detritus that's hiding book scorpions and things like that? So, they're not present in a meaningful level and the bees would remove all loose detritus because they also scrape the surfaces. They don't like porous surfaces. They don't like unpolished surfaces at all. And so they continue to remove that. So I hope it makes sense in the way that I'm describing it. And that thinking is reinforced every single time we look into a cavity occupied by bees, not attended by people. So it's very interesting. Thanks for that question. I would not leave the dead bees. I scrape them out whenever I can. Because the risk in the other direction is if there's a bunch of dead bees over the entrance, 
Again, that's unnatural. The dead bees that can't fly out, you know, they pile up on the bottom. So they have a closed off entrance that uh, they can't get to the entrance to, to clean it out themselves. Moisture builds up, air gets blocked. And so by opening that up, we're helping them out because we're the ones who put that entrance on the bottom board. If they were in a tree, for example, as described before, there would be a space below. And if you've ever seen these cutouts in buildings and walls and things like that, the comb comes down, but there's always a nice big space below it that's nice and clean, by the way. So clean it out while you can. We've, we've altered their environment to suit us. Now we need to help them maintain it. Um, and keep the hygiene up. Question number eight. Craig Shevlin. So I'm going to build two long hives this winter. I know through the years you have addressed questions about hives dying out over winter because they moved up through the hive and ran out of food even though there were stores to the sides. What is the driving desire for the bees to feed horizontally compared to vertically? I knew you had a problem with your first horizontal hive first year. I wanted to learn from your mistake and not make my own. Yes, that's why we're all here. We want to not repeat mistakes. Hopefully I'm helping you skip over some mistakes. Uh, the horizontal hives, there are two factors to, um, well, there could be more than two, but there's two main ones that I saw. And that is uh, going into winter, we want a sizable colony of bees. If, if you've got a big, this is a Langstroth hive we're talking about now, horizontal, long lang. Um, so a couple of things happened. One is there was venting between the top and the base. It looks like a coffin, unfortunately. And where the roof closes and comes together with the base, there is a tiny amount of airflow there. So inside there's one inch thick cover boards. Those one inch thick cover boards in my case are made out of red oak. Below that, below the cover board, there's an airspace, and then there's the back, and that airspace is three eighths of an inch, which is B space. And then there are the backs of the frames below. So the bees need to be able to do a couple of things. One, they need to be able to retain their cluster over the brood, which is their future. They need to keep the queen alive. They need to keep these nurse bees sheltered and protected. So we need thousands of bees to do that. Now, likewise, they need to, on these warmer days, you get these intermediate warm-ups when bees can do cleansing flights is when they can leave the hive. Cleansing flights take priority. They collect water. They bring that in. And so they need the numbers to provide all of these services at the same time. So we need bees that can fly out and get water and come back and attend to the hive. We need undertaker bees that can drag the dead out and get rid of them while other bees are warming and caring for your brood. And this is where when you're doing an autopsy of your dead outs in spring, you often find that they, they clustered right over the brood and then a few frames over or even just a couple frames over, there's plenty of honey and they never got to that. It's because they get stuck over the brood. Now here's another thing that I want you to check out. We'll talk about it more this year, but I kind of discovered it last year too, is that uh, when we look at bees that starve, and it doesn't mean the whole colony died, it sometimes means that you just get a few that are tucked in these little cells and they're dead. And you think, well, that was their last ditch effort to get food, but that really didn't make sense because they're in a brood area. Why would their whole body be in a cell in a brood area when the food's up here? They would go up there and get that food. Do you know what they're doing? 
This is interesting, and I want you in your next autopsy, hopefully you don't have to do one, but if you get a colony that dies, it's an opportunity to learn. Look for the queen, see if they were queenless. But uh, I find that they're actually trying to protect eggs or young larvae. A young larva inside that cell. That's a nurse bee that filled the cell with her body, trying to keep that little larvae warm until the rest of the warm-up came or the rest of the cluster came and helped them out. And so see how many times you can pull a dead bee out and see if there's an egg or a very young larvae or the residue of a young larva in there. It's interesting. So they actually wouldn't leave the brood. So that could be a little heater bee or a nurse bee trying to feed and keep it warm. Who knows? Now, so this year, what am I doing to protect against that? We talked about it earlier. I'm going to put Reflectex on there. Well, I'm sorry. I got to be careful about trade names. Reflectex apparently doesn't have any bubble in it. So double bubble is what I'm talking about. So I have, if I have, this is a cutaway of the end of the Long Langstroth hive. Here's the frame. Here's the horizontal cover boards. And this is the lower box. And then the roof comes down on top of that. I'm putting a blanket of double bubble over the top of the hive and it's gonna go the full length of the hive. So with the lid open, this stuff is gonna spread out over the entire top, right to the outside edges. And that way when I close the lid down, it's gonna come down right on top of this. It's gonna sandwich this in between and that's gonna take care of any potential airflow through there, which would have happened in the past. The second part of that is I'm stapling this stuff to the entire, notice I use present tense because I'm not even done. But the good news is this weekend, we're having two hot days, Saturday and Sunday. So those are gonna be good honeybee working days in between my portrait sessions. And I'll be stapling double bubble into the covers of my horizontal hives. So I'll have the blanket, the airflow stoppage right there, close that up. And then I'll have uh, the inside air pocket there and that will create an R13 according to the experts. So that's what I'm doing different because that will cause fewer bees to have to heat for survival. And then uh, the heat will be more effective. The little amount of heating that they do will be more effective than it has been in the past with the heat dissipating too fast. Now, see, I did have uh, R10 rigid board, rigid foam board insulation up above, but uh, that's defeated. If, if your joints where the hive top and the hive base go together, if there's any leakage of airflow through there, what good is it to have R10 up above it? None, Let's see. So that was a downfall, we're fixing it. Now we're down to question number nine, which comes from Wes from Wildemar, California. I live in Riverside County, California in an area of Southern California hardiness zone nine, and we're mostly out of the coastal marine influence. Prolonged heat, 110 plus degrees are not uncommon. Dry summers, winters can see freezing temps for a couple of months. Question for you. It's my understanding that most, if not all, feral colonies in my area are likely Africanized. What do I do if I'm suited up and an aggressive colony attacks? Please provide any tips you might have for backyard beekeeping in areas known to be Africanized. 
That's a very good question. Um, the latest thing that I like to use, and this is something that you can pre-mix and have ready to go. We all know about the garden sprayers. They come in one gallon, two gallon, five gallon. Some of them are even backpack units. And uh, a lot of people use those for herbicides, Roundup, things like that. That's not what I would use it for. However, you can have a one gallon pump container with a sprayer on it. And what do you think I'm gonna tell you to put in it? Two tablespoons per gallon of Dawn Ultra Free and Clear dish detergent. Biodegradable. I've tested it. It works on wasps. It works on hornets. And it would definitely work on honeybees. Uh, the whole reason I landed on that is because of Randy Oliver's research with using it as a release for counting mites. Release agent kills the bees, kills the mites. You can count them. And then I thought, well, if it really does a number on the bees like that, plus it's biodegradable, that sounds like a win-win if I needed to take out some kind of feral colony or if I ever now encounter a hostile hive of honeybees that has to be taken out because of their proximity to people or whatever, I wouldn't hesitate to pump that right up, fill that, and put your bee suit on and everything else, hose the entrance, pop the lid, spray it inside the lid, and then gradually, just like you're about to do a bee inspection, you've got this hostile hive of bees that uh, is just going to sting everything for who knows how far away. It's your job as the beekeeper, if they're yours, to have an emergency action plan in place with something that'll kill them and uh, allow you to reuse the equipment later. So if you use that, it's going to be a focus thing. It's going to biodegrade. You're supporting a company called Dawn, which also helps anytime there's wildlife rescues, anytime there's a wildlife emergency dealing with petroleum products, spills in the Gulf, things like that. Don is right there and rescue workers use it to clean and restore health to sea animals. So that's why I like promoting them. That would work and I've used it. I took down a big paper wasp nest with it. I have a really strong squirt gun that I used for that and took those out works on ground hornets ground wasps and uh, would definitely work on a colony of bees so that could be part of your emergency equipment staged by the way these are things like with any emergency you've got a fire extinguisher it's already on your wall it's already ready to go i know you're drilling and training on how to find it i know that you shut off all the lights on the kids and then you make them find their way to an extinguisher in the dark and uh, find their exits and things like that and uh, so emergency training, you know, practice grabbing the stuff, everything that you need and have it set aside from your regular gear. And some people don't even own a full bee suit. If ever there's a reason to own a full protective bee suit, that would be one. If you live in an area where the opportunity to encounter Africanized bees, which would have this irrational response to a beekeeper and uh, potentially attack and kill people, uh, that's an area where you want to have maximum protection, maximum equipment, and something to euthanize the bees. So that would work. CO2 extinguishers and stuff like that, big and heavy. I have a big, huge 50-pound CO2 extinguisher. A lot of people can't carry that around to hit the bees. It's only knockdown, by the way. They'll snap right back. So with that, it gets right into their spiracles and uh, kills them and defeats the cuticle on their bodies. And that grounds those bees right away. That's what I would recommend. That was it for today. Now we're on to the fluff. 
So thank you for that question. I hope uh, you don't have to deal with it, but you need to have the stuff on hand, ready to go. Uh, so for the fluff, I've been doing a test recently for inverted drinkers. Now I generally don't put them on hives. We know we use the rapid rounds and stuff, but uh, what I have here is a quart jar and there's an arrow on it right here. Three days ago, I filled this jar and just through the normal temperature changes from early morning overnight to daytime temperatures, all of the liquid was expressed out of this jar. You can see where it is now down here. So liquid came out of this on its own. And what I, this is why I want to talk about this because a lot of people think my bees are taking down syrup like crazy. You'll hear that all the time. And we don't always know if they're taking the syrup because they have to, or if they're taking the syrup because they're actually hungry and they want it, especially as you get later in the year. So no matter what you're putting in that jar, and this, by the way, that's a feeder lid that's designed for quart jars, and it's designed to go on mason jars. It's designed for feeding bees. So now if the bees take it, when that jar is full all the way to the top, you'll have little or no leakage into your hive. And this is also why I want you to think about where that jar is placed over your bees down below. I don't like the idea of having an inverted tank style or bottle style vessel over your bees in the center over the cluster. As that airspace, if let's say they do consume it, as the airspace grows, you have the dynamic of what goes on with the thermal changes. That impact becomes greater. And each morning as the temperatures rise, it pushes more fluid down into the hive. And if you've got your hives tilted forward and the landing board is, you know, on the low side of the hive, uh, most people that are feeding try to keep their hives fairly level if they're using inverted jars and stuff. But uh, what I want to illustrate is that took three days, three days without any bees feeding on it. It didn't matter if it had ProSweet in it. It didn't matter if it had two to one or one to one sugar syrup or water. In three days, almost all of it had expressed out on its own just from the expansion of air. And what happened at night when it got really cold? It drew air in so that air contracted up above and pulled air through the feeder and up into that void. And then when it warmed up again, the pressure went positive up there and pushed the liquid down and out through the feeder. That's why I'm saying be very careful when you think that they're consuming all of the sugar syrup and they just need so much more. Unless you're keeping it topped off all the way, which most aren't. By the time it gets down to halfway, the amount of fluid being pushed out of there without the bees drawing it is increased. And so it actually picks up momentum and more and more. So the lower it is, the lower the, the fluid level inside those inverted bottles and tanks, the lower the fluid level is, the more of it gets pushed out through the thermal dynamic, just air pressure inside that void. That's something really to think about because that does not happen with wrapping around feeders, with some of the Cirocell hive top feeders. Even that APAME feeder is a reservoir. It has no potential to express its liquid down in onto your bees. So if that were to happen, if you, let's say you put jars of honey on, some people have even done that, thinking that that's better in winter because it's honey for the bees. 
It has the potential to express honey down into your hive when the bees are not drinking it. And you can destroy brood down below because honey will run down and suffocate brood. And the bees have to clean one another up at a time when they're not into consuming that resource. So it's very important. Please know what's going on. And you can do those experiments yourself. So if you've got kids at home and you've got uh, you know, homeschool and you have a science component, it's a great way to figure out what gases do through normal changes of temperature because now we're dropping, as I mentioned today, we're at 29 degrees this morning, goes into the 50s by afternoon. That's a 30 degree change. And if I had left this out there as part of my time-lapsed uh, observation, today it would have emptied itself without any bees drinking. Food for thought. What design drinker you use on your hives. I'm a huge fan, even more so now. I kind of knew this already, but I decided to do the tests over a period of three days just to see what would happen, and the results are impressive. So I'm, I'm a fan of the reservoir style, whatever, whoever, I don't know who, whoever makes the one that you like the most. I am not going to be using a tank style or bottles, anything that inverts and traps air above it you run the risk of expressing sugar syrup, pro-sweet, or even honey down onto your bees when they don't have a demand for it with the population of the bees in the hive. Food for thought. Also, uh, today's uh, shout out for those that were asking about the Asian hornet. So I want you to understand uh, how they figured out, first of all, the, the geography and where they're headed and how they're expanding. That's one thing. And that link will be associated with that question when it was asked. But today's shout out goes to another channel altogether. They don't speak English. And let me explain, they don't have to. If you'll watch this video, you're going to understand much better about uh, Vespa mandarinia, the Asian giant hornet. The channel, the title of the channel is Hornets removal. So, uh, and then what they show is they've got meat out and, you know, these uh, Asian giant hornets come and they cut away the meat. They're incredibly good at harvesting meat. And of course, where do they go? Why are they harvesting meat? The hornet itself cannot eat the meat. They can't process it. They're going to fly back to their nest. And this video, I really hope you'll take a minute to watch it. I already commented on it and uh, they hook when they get the hornets they hook a piece of it looks like cellophane or bread wrapper or something to the bee and it's big it's a long piece like that and this thing flies off and then what they do is they send out scouts other people that are helping them locate these nests and they see where it flies with that and then they move closer and closer and they're spotting it and they're talking to each other on their cell phones and they're finding out exactly where that nest is. And so here in the United States, they're using radio transmitters and they're attaching them with dental floss and it's, it's a great way to find out again where they're going. But these guys also get in and they cut it all apart and they're gonna show you what the nest is like. It's very impressive. I hope you'll watch it. And I hope even though they don't speak English that maybe you'll make a comment on there and say that you appreciate It'll, it'll really kind of bring it into perspective what those look like. And you won't have somebody showing you one of these and saying, we have giant hornets. This is like a mosquito compared to that. So I hope that you'll watch that. I want to thank you for being here with me today. 
And I hope that you have a warm weekend as we do here. And you have an opportunity to get out there and really make sure you're not being robbed. Watch out for inverted style feeders. And uh, take care of your entrances and get your bees ready for winter. Thanks for being here. I hope you have a fantastic weekend.